celebrate the Lord's Supper, which, of course, as Richie pointed out, and as you know, uh, we commemorate the Lord's death and resurrection, but also we, we do it until the Lord comes, uh, proclaiming his death until he comes, and we look forward to uh, that kingdom that comes when Jesus returns. And um, if really, our whole message this morning is a preparation for the Lord's Supper. So, um, as we look at the glory of Christ and uh, the glory of his death even that is anticipated here and the glory of his coming kingdom and all of that pulled together even and commemorated and celebrated in uh, the Lord's Supper. So we have a lot in front of us this morning. And so um, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9 where we will be looking at verses 28 to 36 this morning in our study of the Gospel of Luke and looking at what's been called the transfiguration. Let me pray just one more time and ask the Lord's help. Lord, we just ask a special way that you would bless the reading, the teaching, and the application of your word to your people, and that you would do a great work in opening our eyes to the glory of Christ here in this text, and that our hearts would long to listen to him and to have assurance and confidence from what is coming. In our present circumstances, um, that you would give us confidence of what comes when Christ returns, and that that would give us ballast in our souls, knowing that truth, to be upright in the storms that come, and and, uh, to not become too comfortable here, but to look forward to that day. We ask your help in Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen. Follow along as I read verses 28 to 36 of Luke chapter 9. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the living God. Some years ago, I read a book entitled The Millionaire Next Door. And uh, it was really fascinating. And I was on a big Dave Ramsey kick at the time. And, uh, and so he had talked about this book. So I, I listened to this book on Audible. And uh, it, it explained the, the habits and the lifestyle uh, habits of uh, everyday millionaires. These are not people who make a million dollars a year. These are net worth millionaires. They have a total net worth of at least a million dollars. And the book dispelled many myths that that people would think that, oh, they inherited most of it or whatever. These were were what we would call self-made net worth millionaires. And uh, here are some of the things that they described about um, these uh, these people, this category of um, wealth earners. They did... um, they lived within their means. Shocker. <laughs> they, often lived, they often had a budget. You think, why, why do they need a budget? They, they kept a budget even after becoming net worth millionaires. They consistently invested a portion of their paycheck each month into the market. Uh, they often bought used cars, yet reliable cars. I think they said like the most common car that they owned were, was a Toyota, okay? So, uh, or a Lexus, you know, but a, but a used one, an LS400. I think that's what they said, an LS4. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so they, they were often frugal. Um, they were concerned more about financial independence than they were about appearing wealthy 
on the external by their purchases. Uh, they were often uh, able to resist social pressure regarding the things that they should buy to appear a certain way, uh, but rather to live within their means. And so they, many other things. Um, one big takeaway from the book was that the millionaire next door, as the title goes, was someone that you may not recognize. You may not go, oh, wow, like this person um, is a net worth millionaire. They don't stick out. They are not flashy. You probably wouldn't know it. They're true assets just by looking at them. Now, wh why am I talking about this? Well, it's similar to our passage in a way. And you think, why? How? Well, uh, just like you might have the millionaire next door, you don't really know because of their, their external appearance uh, that they are a net worth millionaire. We have something different here. It's the Messiah next door, right? Just by looking at Jesus, you would not see his glory, you would not see uh, him as uh, the, what, what, what he ap appears as in the transfiguration. And that's what we have in our passage. You have the Messiah next door. But here, you have the unveiling of that. In a sense, the majesty of Jesus that was veiled in the incarnation, which is really what Christmas is about, the incarnation and the veiling of the eternal son, it is unveiled in this moment. And it's as if we get to look into Jesus' bank account and we get to see the weightiness of Jesus' glory. That's really what glory has the connotation of. It is weight. It is significance. It is really, it comes from the word that has the idea of heaviness, right? If you, if you think of someone who throws their weight around, that's someone who is not necessarily heavy by pounds, but they are significant. And so that's the idea of glory, uh, is weightiness. And so here we see a glimpse of the weightiness of the glory of Jesus. And that's why I say, you know, we see his bank account, right? We see how weighty he is. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, that's not a health and wealth prosperity verse, but uh, it, you could see how they can, might use it that way. But here you see the, the worth of uh, the riches of Jesus' glory as the eternal son that is somewhat veiled, and he appears as poor, in a sense. But here you have the unveiling. And this is where Jesus shows them his bank account. He shows them how rich he really is, and yet how veiled it has been. We get a glimpse of glory. Another way to think about this passage is to think about it as a trailer, a movie trailer, uh, a preview of coming attractions, right? What we're getting in the transfiguration is a preview of kingdom glory. And so you know what trailers are like. A movie comes out and uh, it's about to come out, and you, you see the two-minute, three-minute little preview, and it, and it gives some of the main scenes, and it has a great soundtrack, and you, and you get excited to go see the movie. But you can't see it yet because it's not out. You got to wait, and that's what the that trailer's meant to do. You know, uh, if it's a really good movie, maybe you've watched the trailer multiple times before the movie comes out because you're just like, oh, I just, I just need a little bit more to keep me going until it comes out. And that's what the transfiguration is. And you're like, Okay, double introduction this morning. You know, what am I doing? I want you to just lodge this in your mind. So whether it's, you got to think about seeing Jesus' bank account or the pre, uh, tree, uh, <laughs> you have to speak English, uh, preview of coming attractions. I want it, this to lock into your mind. So when you think of the transfiguration, you know how to categorize it. You know how to think about what is happening here. What is the purpose then of this? And I think you get the application of this uh, in two ways, uh, I mean, it's largely from the context, which is no shock to us. We, we know that uh, context is king when we study the Bible. And so what has just happened in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke? Well, what we found is that just prior to this, Jesus has asked his disciples who people are saying that he is. And Jesus, they've said, well, you know, there's a lot of different options, but he, he, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter says that he's the Messiah, and then they're not to tell anyone about this because they don't have the whole message yet about what kind of Messiah he is. Then he tells them explicitly that he must die and must rise from the dead on the third day. And so this has introduced something into their, um, their category for Messiah that, that really blows their circuits. It's not something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It certainly was, but it's something that wasn't a part of their conception of Messiah. 
They couldn't fit this in. And so this creates some dissonance for them. And then he tells them what the demands of discipleship are going to be, that it's going to be, in many ways, difficult and suffering, just like the Messiah must have suffering and then glory. And so this is the context of the transfiguration. It is really a way to give them assurance and confidence in who Jesus is and what will come about in the end. Because for them, they're thinking, okay, glory is about to come. The Messiah is going to establish his kingdom on the earth, and he's going to rule, and he's going to defeat his enemies. And here's Jesus' way of saying, all of that is true. All of that is going to happen, but it's not yet. So come over and come to the theater, and let's watch a preview of coming attractions. And so he gives them a glimpse of the kingdom glory. And, and it, it really uh, reminds them, yes, this is going to happen, but this is just a preview. This is not right now. Right now is the journey to Jerusalem where I must suffer and die. And so that's what he's doing here. He's trying to assure them and give them confidence in the plan. And also, he wants them to listen uh, to, well, the father wants them to listen to the son even though this message doesn't cohere with what they had expected, they are to conform their expectations to Scripture and to the Son and what he says. And so then the Father says, listen to him. So I've given you the application already. You can close your Bibles and go home, all right? <laughs> Figure it out yourself. No, no. Uh, but I want you to be uh, attuned to that as we walk through this passage. This is just, I mean, I, I think you think I say this every week. This is like one of my favorite passages in, in Luke, but it is so good. And I hope you get excited about scripture too like that. I know you do. Um, so let me remind you of the immediate context then in verse 27. Verse 27, which at first seems kind of a strange verse to us. After giving the demands of discipleship, he says in verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You think, what is that about? Well, last time we pointed out a few um, observations about this verse. It, it, one thing, it is sure. I tell you truly. So this is something that is sure to happen. It, we also said it's for, only for some of the disciples, a select group. There are some standing here. It's only for some of them. And then we also notice this will happen soon. There are some standing here who will not taste death until... So this will be within there uh, a short period of time. And then this will involve a sight of the kingdom of God uh, who, until they see the kingdom of God, until they see the kingdom of God. And as we pointed out last time in brief, that this verse, though many have different understandings of how this could be applied or how, what Jesus is talking about, uh, I think it is best contextually and when we cross-reference other places that he's talking about the transfiguration. Verse 27 is fulfilled, incomplete, at the transfiguration. All three of the gospel writers who include the demands of discipleship and this statement of seeing the kingdom of God by some of them, the next thing they describe is the transfiguration event. Peter also, as we'll see later, will connect these two as well. And the, the seeing his glory, the glory of the, the coming kingdom when they saw Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so that's what verse 27 is talking about. It's the promise of this preview, really, the promise of the preview. So as we look at this, the focus is on the glory of Christ, the unveiling of the glory of Christ. And so what we want to do as we look at our passage is consider four ways the glory of Jesus Christ is displayed to give us confidence for the future. Four ways the glory of Jesus Christ is displayed to give us confidence for the future. And remember, the Gospel of Luke, his particular purpose is especially related to giving confidence. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he's writing to Theophilus. He wants Theophilus to have confidence in the things that he has heard. And so, so it is here. So, what we want to see is the glory of Christ displayed, the glory of Christ discussed, the glory of Christ delayed, and the glory of Christ declared. So let's first consider the glory of Christ displayed. The glory of Christ displayed in verses 27, or, or verses 20, well, yeah, 27 to 29. We just talked about verse 27. But he gives the promise in verse 27 that that's going to take place. And then look at verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings. So he gives the saying that some of them will see the kingdom of God. And then eight days later, 
he took with him Peter, John, Jan John, and James, a small group, some of them, and they went up on the mount and, uh, and went up on the mountain to pray. And so he takes them up. Why three of them? Well, likely, uh, this is common uh, in Scripture, that the testimony of two or three witnesses is to confirm something. This is maybe also why you have Moses and Elijah on the mount in a moment, to also be a confirmation. And so you have these, these witnesses of this coming glory, and he takes them up on the mountain. Commentators like to discuss which mountain. We don't know. Okay, there you go. Maybe Mount Hermon, but that's what they say. Uh, mountains, though, are places of revelation in Scripture. This is often the case where God gives a, a disclosure of himself uh, on a mountain. And what I want us to see here, though, in this display of Christ's glory is not only do we see a display of Christ's glory in the past, the display of Christ's past glory, but we also see in this a display of Christ's future glory. So what, what do we mean by that? Well, let's consider first a display of the past glory of Christ. Look at verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now Luke alone mentions that Jesus was praying, and because Luke likes to do this, he, he likes to put uh, key moments in the life of Jesus in the context of prayer and, and highlight that. He's often praying before significant events, and here is another tip-off that this is a, a massively significant event. Now, Luke doesn't use the word for transfigured. Matthew does. It is the word we get our word metamorphosis from. Uh, but Luke emphasizes his face and his clothing, it, that his clothing becomes dazzling white. We might say, Jesus has a halo, right? <laughs> Which normally we say, you know, Jesus didn't have a halo and he walked around. Uh, and those pictures often portray, you know, saints and Jesus like that in, in ancient art. But actually here, he is lit up. Uh, and, and this light is not shining upon him, it is shining from him. He is the, the light that is lighting up this scene. And so it's dazzling. In fact, this word for dazzling is a word that's related to lightning. And actually, this is a fascinating study. If you study a number of uh, appearances of God, and you'll find connections to lightning and uh, so just fascinating study. It's kind of a nerd study. Uh, but when the sun returns, it's going to be in blazing light. And here he has this lightning-like appearance. And in fact, in Matthew, when he refers to Jesus' second coming, in Matthew 25, verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. He comes in this glory, the dazzling. A veiling of Jesus' eternal glory is unveiled for a brief moment. So turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And here's another great Christmas passage. Speaking of the incarnation, Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so here is the veiling of the eternal glory. Though he's in the form of God, though he's truly God of true, true God of true God, he, is, he, he adds to his deity humanity. So I would like to repeat this statement, especially on Christmas time, because it's so helpful. It's a church history kind of saying that remaining what he was, he became what he was not. That's a great Christmas statement to have. Put it on your Christmas card if you haven't sent it out already. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Because we're not saying he, he ceased to be God in any way. He, he maintains all of his divine attributes, and yet he adds to that humanity. And, and so that has this veiling effect. 
of his glory. Um, another way to, to think about this is in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' uh, pr- uh, priestly prayer on the eve of his crucifixion. And here's one of the things he prays. John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So this is speaking of the eternal glory of the Son. And so here is what we're seeing on the Mount of Transfiguration. As we're up there and we're seeing with, <laughs> with Peter, James, and John, uh, the glory of Christ unveiled. We're seeing a sense of the, the past glory of Jesus, that he is the eternal Son of the Father, and we're seeing his glory here. But we also see a display of the future glory of Christ in the transfiguration. And this will be the focal point of the kingdom, the glory of Christ on full display. In fact, if you just go back a little bit in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, look what Jesus said. For whoever is ashamed of me and, my wor- and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Here Jesus is talking about his second coming and he s- describes it as glory. He's gonna come in glory. And so here the disciples are getting a, a sense, a glimpse of the glory of Christ. In fact, in a, in a few verses it's gonna say in verse 32, they saw his glory What kind of glory? Well, they're seeing, like we said, his past glory, but as it's looking forward to the future glory of Christ unveiled when he returns. Like we said, it's a trailer. It's a preview. Now, the moment they get to see is so important for them, and it's so important for us. It is the moment of all moments that they're getting a glimpse of. The moment is similar to other moments we see in redemptive history. Isaiah saw the same moment in Isaiah 6. Ezekiel saw the same moment in Ezekiel chapter 1. Daniel sees the same moment in Daniel chapter 7. Paul likely sees the same moment in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road. And John sees the same moment in Revelation chapter 1. It is as if you know, when, when we talk about the, the crucifixion and resurrection, we don't say that there were four deaths of Christ and four resurrections of Christ because four Gospels describe the event. No, we understand that this is such a unique event that we say, no, 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 these are different perspectives of the same event. And I think uh, that is a helpful way to look at these different visions that we have in Scripture, that they are not all these different visions of different things happening, but they are different perspectives and glimpses of this ultimate event. As one person said, this is the moment we've been waiting for. This is the moment of all moments when the eternal son receives the kingdom that has been promised to him by the father and he comes to the earth and establishes his reign upon the earth in light of what he has done to accomplish that through his death. And so this is the moment of all moments. This is the moment that puts fuel in your tank and this is why he gives it to them. This is the motivation for ministry. What you'll also notice is, not, not in every case, but in many cases, this vision comes to people in Scripture around the time of their call to ministry in some way, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel's already been called, but he gets this as a, as a further motivation. Uh, Paul, at his conversion and calling, and of course, John has been an apostle, but he's, he's writing the Revelation and we see them getting this vision. And they're, they're looking at it from different angles, but there's connections throughout. This is the ultimate moment. This is where history is headed. And this is why we need to see this vision, right? This is a great passage to go to, as, as, as are all these visions, when you're, when you're struggling, when you, need, when you need hope. When you need hope, you go to these passages because this is the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate place for hope. This is where everything is headed. This is, this is where the future is going. Jesus prayed uh, later in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is Jesus' prayer. This is the guarantee for all believers that we will see his glory unveiled 
This is where the future is headed. So when things don't look right now, remember the transfiguration. Remember the glory that is coming. Remember that the world has been promised to the Messiah, and it will happen. This is the glory of Jesus displayed, the glory of Christ displayed. Notice, secondly, the glory of Christ discussed. The glory of Christ discussed. Look at verses 30 to 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The focus of this section is as upon the conversation between these saints and Jesus. And you can just see it here as the text emphasizes it. It says they were talking with him. And then in, in verse 31, they spoke of his departure. So the focus is, is upon what they're talking about, the subject of their conversation. Moses and Elijah here appear, it says, in glory, and are talking and speaking with Christ. Now, just as a... A little side note to observe here, maybe not the focal point of the text, but certainly an encouragement. Notice that here you have two believing saints from different eras, separated by hundreds of years in redemptive history, who have both died, but are alive, right? They are present in heaven, and they are now uh, appearing in glory with the Lord Jesus talking with him. They are not lost. They are not, their lives are not over. They continue to exist. And they are aware of God's plan. And so what an encouragement that those who have died, whether they be thousands of thousands of years ago or yesterday, uh, that they are in the very presence of the Lord. They are in glory. And that they are, notice as well, they maintain their identities. They maintain their memories, right? They're not like, what, you know, they they're very aware of what they wrote, what they did, their role in history, and you recognize them. I don't know, were they wearing jerseys, you know, Moses, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but no, they were probably identified some way. We don't know how, but, uh, but they are themselves. They know and remember things. So there's great encouragement here about what we call the intermediate state, the um, we, we say good, better, best, right? It's good that we're alive, that we know the Lord here. It's better that we would go and be with the Lord, but it's the best when we're resurrected on the new heavens and new earth. They're in the, the good state, or the, or the better state, um, but not the best state yet. Uh, they are comforted there. So that's just a good observation to make here, a glimpse of the experience of believers after death. But why Moses and Elijah? Why Moses and Elijah? Many reasons could be put forth. Uh, Moses and Elijah seem to represent the law and the prophets. Uh, these spoke of Christ. So we'll just stay in Luke and go to Luke 24. Luke 24, this is after the resurrection. In verse 26, Jesus says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Uh, Jesus in um, Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The idea is there is to accomplish all that the law, which Moses wrote, and the prophets predicted. Everything they said about the world and the Messiah and the kingdom, Messiah will ensure that it comes to pass. Things are moving on as planned. Also, we might note that Moses and Elijah both witnessed the glory of God at different points in their ministries. They got to experience a glimpse of the glory of God. Uh, in addition to that, Moses really represents the prophetic office that Jesus will occupy. We'll see that in a moment. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, look for the prophet who's like me. He's coming. Listen to him. And Elijah is presented as the one who comes before the, the end times, before the kingdom in Malachi. Not only that, but Moses is at the beginning of the establishment of the kingdom in Israel. 
at Sinai. And so we, the kingdom relates to this uh, reestablishment of that kingdom. So there's Moses. And then Elijah, he comes prior to the kingdom in the Old Testament. And so you have the one who begins the kingdom, Moses at Sinai, Israel's established. And then the one who comes right before the kingdom, Elijah. And so they're significant figures. Here's another feature. Go to Malachi. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Just go to Matthew and then go back one page. In Malachi 4, this is how our English Old Testament ends. The Hebrew Old Testament ends with Chronicles. But here we see the ending. And it's a short chapter, so... Verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in, his wing, in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts, remember, look at this, verse four, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So how does the Old Testament end? What is the exhortation and command as the Old Testament ends? It is this, remember the law and look for the prophet, Moses and Elijah. And so, here are some of the reasons why these particular men appear at this moment. I mean, this is how the Old Testament ends. Hey, remember Moses? Look for Elijah. And here they are in this preview. What are they discussing? Why are they there? Now, what are they discussing? The text says they spoke of his departure. That's an interesting word, even if in your English text, departure. Why would you say departure? Sounds like you're getting on a plane, right? Your departure is at gate five, you know? It's like, here's a Greek word that I know, even if you've never studied Greek, you already know it, right? It's just like an easy vocab word. It is the word exodus. Exodus, that's what it is. Exodus. I think that's interesting. That's the word Departure. Well, to what then does this refer? Well, in another usage, uh, it's other usage actually in the New Testament, it is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. And Peter uses it to talk about his death, his own death. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So he's talking about his death. So of course, it refers to death, uh, at its most basic level. And that's what they're talking about. They're talking about Jesus' coming death, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Yet, you can't help but think that this term has more baggage with it. Uh, that's my pun on departure, right? Okay. Um, and, and it does, because it's easy for Luke to talk about his death. They were talking about his death. I mean, Jesus just talked about that he must die, he must suffer. But here he uses this word that has connotations with it that bring up the idea of the exodus, because it is the word for exodus. Now, what's interesting, and I wish we had more time to, this is why it's such a favorite passage of mine. There's so much, there, it's like, you know, the, the conspiracy theory walls that you see in movies, where they've got like, they open their, their apartment up, and it's always like in a, an apartment in New York, and, they, and they've got like the bulletin board, and it's got all these little pins in the wall, and there's like, there's strings everywhere, and all over the place, and, and, and it's like, this connects to this, and this, this is, and it's just this mash of, it looks like spaghetti, right? And that's the conspiracy theory wall. That's what this text is like, except it's not a conspiracy theory. It's all the connections, both backwards and forwards in scripture, where you just have all these, you have the transfiguration. It's like, you know, it's like a bunch of spaghetti. And so you can trace out so many different uh, lines of reasoning, and it's easy to get lost in all of it. So we're going to try and be disciplined. 
I'm going to try and be disciplined. Okay, but I just want you to note something that where do we get the concept of Exodus from? Easy. The book of Exodus, right? It establishes this paradigm of, one person said, God's signature move. This is what God does. This is how God delivers. And it sets up a paradigm for how God is going to work. And so what you have is he, he begins by establishing the deliverer in Moses. And in chapter two of Exodus, you have Moses who has like a, a mini Exodus. He has his own personal Exodus. And it's kind of like Noah who he's put into a little mini ark. It's the same word for Noah's ark. He gets put into like a baby ark and then he gets floated down the Nile and uh, and he's, he has his own little personal exodus. There's other connections there in the text that want you to make that connection. And so the idea is that the one who represents Israel, the one who will represent Israel, Moses, is going to have his own personal exodus before the people have their exodus corporately. And that seems to be the concept that gets set up. And of course, we see this idea, the technical term, we've you, you should have heard it before we've talked about it, is corporate solidarity. The one represents the many. And you see that with David. David is the king of Israel, and he represents the nation Israel. So many of the same things that David has to go through in his life are things that Israel goes through, and vice versa. And we see that as well, that Jesus represents his people, so he does some of the same things. We've already seen that in Luke, where Jesus goes into the wilderness, just like Israel went into the wilderness, just like David went into the wilderness, and we're tempted there. And so we, we see these connections. Here as well, you see Luke picking up on this idea of Moses has a personal exodus and the people will have a personal or a, a corporate exodus. So here, this is talking about Jesus's exodus, his personal exodus, but it's his death. That's what they're talking about. But it's couched in this language to recall for us that he represents the many. And Moses sets up for, and the prophets continue to teach this idea that there's going to be another exodus in history, a second exodus, and it's going to blow the first exodus out of the water. In fact, he's going to say, you're not going to talk about the first exodus because this second one's going to be so great. And, and so that's this setup from the Old Testament. And what is the basis for it? Well, the basis for that great exodus is the exodus of the Lord Jesus Christ. He sets up for it. Now, there's more connections. So what holiday, what Jewish holiday is Jesus crucified on? It's Passover. And what does the Passover commemorate? The Exodus, yeah. So there's more connections. One writer said, since that feast celebrated Israel's exodus from Egypt, what better time could there be for Jesus' exodus from the world? So the exodus of Jesus will ensure the exodus of his people. Let me show you uh, how this works in a, in a really great passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. By the way, this is, in, this is a phenomenal text to use uh, for Jewish evangelism because uh, it shows how the individual uh, Israel will save the corporate Israel. Um, that there's an individual person who is going to deliver Israel corporately. <laughs> Look at verse 1, Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. What does that sound like? It like, sounds like Revelation 19, right? Uh, the sword that comes from his mouth, the imagery. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now, this is talking about an individual person. And God says to this person, you are my servant Israel. Here's a, a, an individual person who's called Israel. Verse four, but I said, so here's the, the individual servant saying, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. So it's like the rejection of this Messiah of this person, of his servant. Yet, surely, my right hand is with Yahweh and my recompense with my God. So, in other words, God still is working out his plan. Verse five, and now Yahweh says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh and my God has become my strength. Now, what is he saying here? This is why the individual cannot be Israel corporately, because the individual is called Israel, 
But this individual delivers Israel, right? How does Israel deliver Israel? They don't. So verse five is key. His servant is going to bring back Jacob and Israel. So this individual Israelite who embodies Israel is going to be the means by which Israel is delivered. Look what verse six says. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So what he's saying is, God is like, you know, it's not enough to just save Jacob and Israel. I want to save all the Gentile nations. And so that's Genesis 12, 3, that he's going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, verse 7, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about the prosperous conditions that this Messiah, the servant, will bring. This is one of what we call the servant songs in Isaiah. Of course, the most famous one is Isaiah 52 and 3, uh, which talks about the suffering servant, but this is another one of those. And so you see how an individual Israelite will represent his people and save his people. And so there, there's all these connections between the one representing the many, and here Jesus has his own personal exodus to ensure the future exodus of his people. Now, uh, that, that future exodus for Israel corporately, uh, eschatologically, will look like God regathering his people after regenerating their hearts. And when Paul talks about when all Israel will be saved and he will bring them back, it'll be a great exodus. But not only that, but there is this sense of the spiritual exodus that we experience in conversion uh, that all people experience when in, in the in the first exodus, there was a delivery from slavery, a deliverance from slavery in Egypt to be a slave of God. And that is the very picture of our salvation, that we were enslaved to our sin, and now we are freed from that bondage, and we are enslaved to God. Right? That's that slave language that the Bible uses. He is our master, and we are his slaves. And so this is the, the exodus we've experienced, or I hope you've experienced, have you experienced this exodus where you've been freed from the slavery, the bondage of your sin, and become a slave of God and of Christ? And so Jesus will experience, this is what they're talking about. This is what they're jazzed about. They're, they're, they're there with Jesus, and they're, they're talking about this. And what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem has massive implications in God's plan. It's going to be the capital of the world one day. as a massive role. It's the city of God's king. And so what, what better subject to to have a, as our discussion then the exodus work of Christ, the salvation work of Christ. J.C. Ryle says this, if saints in glory see in Christ's death so much beauty that they must needs talk of it, how much ought our, excuse me, how much more ought sinners on earth? How much more should we be talking about the death of Christ and just glorying in it? Oh man, can you think about this aspect? Oh, isn't this gonna be great? And, and don't just limit it here, but think what, what, Christ's death, what did Christ's death accomplish? Vertically, peace with God. Horizontally, peace with man, the animal kingdom, the new heavens, new earth. I mean, this is what, this is what, this is what fires us up as Christians. We go, yeah, I want to talk about the departure. I want to talk about this exodus and all that it brought about. That, that, this focal point in history that guarantees everything else in God's plans. Oh, it's so good. And you get all excited. And this is why it gives you assurance. This is why it gives you confidence. Because you talk about this and your heart goes, yeah, that's right. That's how the world actually is. And so here we see the glory of Christ discussed. The glory of Christ discussed. And it just fills our hearts with assurance and confidence. Notice third, the glory of Christ delayed. The glory of Christ delayed. Look at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. The, the idea is like they were overcome with sleep. I mean, have you ever been like that? You, you're trying. You're really trying. And you, uh, you're just falling asleep. You know, one of my favorite things in life is falling asleep during a movie. I mean, I just love being that exhausted. And you're watching me and you're just like, and you wake up and it's like half over. And you're like, oh man, I missed it. But I, I really like that. I don't know. I'm weird. But it's like, uh, and I'm just like, man, it's just so great to be that exhausted. It means you worked hard, I guess. Uh, but they are so heavy. And what a bad time to miss a movie, right? What a bad time to miss the trailer. You're like, wait, Moses and Elijah, the glory. Oh, 
Wait, what did they just say? What did they just say? Poor guys, you know. This is why you stay awake, okay? <laughs> stay awake when you're praying. Um, uh, we don't know how much they miss, but when they awake, they see the glory of Christ. They're awakened by this, and they see, they see Moses and Elijah with him. Here's another reason why we should take this as a preview of the second coming glory, because of the way it's described. They saw his glory. That's how the second coming was described in Luke 9, 26. And it's also the way that the second coming is described in Luke 21, verse 27. There it says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. There's that redemption language that comes from Exodus, okay? It's all connecting. It all connects. Hope you see it. All right, so they, they're seeing this second coming glory, this kingdom glory. Now look at verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, they're starting to leave Moses and Elijah. They're parting. What did that look like? We don't know. Uh, they're packing their bags. Well, what, I imagine like in the Marvel movies where the, this big circle, you know, comes and it's like, shh, and they like walk through this portal, you know, and they disappear. Uh, that's probably not what happened. But uh, notice here though, there's some there's some awareness that they are leaving, that this moment is fading, that it's ending, that it's not permanent. And as Peter recognizes that, he begins to speak. He wants to prolong this moment. And this is where he says, let's stay here, <laughs> essentially. He says, Lord, it is good that we are here. What an understatement. What an, I mean, when, when you're in a great moment, sometimes you don't know what to say. Lord, it is great that we are here. I mean, this is, I think, what we're all gonna say when the new heavens and new earth dawn. Lord, it is so good that we are here. Oh, we're finally here. It's gonna be so, so sweet. All those reunions, the glory of Christ, the way the world should be, better than Eden, all these great things. Oh, it's good that we're here. And Peter's getting a glimpse of that. He's watching the trailer and he wants to see the whole movie. But why does he want to make three tents? What's up with that? Is he just a really, really big into camping? You know, he's got all his REI stuff, and he's like, all right, let's do it, you know. Now, Peter, people get on Peter a lot for this comment for various reasons, and maybe some of those are justified, but I think we should be, go easy on Peter here. You don't want to have to apologize to him when you get there. <laughs> he makes a suggestion because he's on to something. He, when do you make tents or Sukkot? You make them for the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, which is another festival of Israel's. Well, why would Peter want to celebrate the Feast of Booths at a moment like this? Well, turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Go to Malachi and then one book back, Zechariah. I know this is the sticky pages section of your Bible, potentially. <laughs> so, that's okay. Um, we'll, we'll break it up. We'll break in that new Bible. Zechariah 14. And here's the context of Zechariah 14. It is the second coming of the Messiah. Jerusalem is surrounded at the beginning of the chapter uh, in a time of tribulation. All the nations are coming against them. And then, verse 4 of chapter 14, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northwards and the other half southwards. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king. Then Yahweh my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to Yahweh, neither day nor night. But at evening time, there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, 
and Yahweh shall be king, will be king over all the earth. On that day, Yahweh will be one and his name one. And so here is this great moment as Christ returns. And of course, see some of what happens then at that moment. But then go to verse 16. He establishes his millennial kingdom on the earth. And here's what we see, verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. And there shall be the plague with which Yahweh afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. So here's what, as if we pull in New Testament theology and all these things, we say, in the millennial kingdom, when Christ returns and establishes a thousand-year reign, we will celebrate the Feast of Booths. All the nations will, not just Israel. All the nations will come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And, and here he gives a hypothetical. Let's say one nation, Egypt, for example, they decide we're not going to come up. Well, then God is going to discipline them for not doing that. And so Peter knows likely this passage, and he's thinking, this is the kingdom. This is a kingdom text of the Messiah. And so Oh, Moses, Elijah, the kingdom, the glory. Okay, what do we do? We got to celebrate the Feast of Booths. <laughs> so he goes, let's do it. Let's build these booths. It's not just that Peter's like wanting to extend it alone. He gets it. He's saying, the kingdom, it's here. This is it. It's good that we're here. Let's, let's celebrate the Feast of Booths. He's right in a sense, but he doesn't get that it's not yet. It's still not in his mind that this is only a trailer. You could put it in this terms. Peter is watching the trailer, and he's like, let's go pop some popcorn, and, and let's watch the whole movie right now. Well, you, I don't know if you've ever popped popcorn to watch a trailer. Probably not, right? Because it's not long enough. And so this is fading. It is not here yet. This kingdom glory is not yet. This is why we call it the delay. And so he doesn't get that yet, but he, he does see a preview. It will be, but it is not yet. So this is the glory of Christ delayed. Finally, we see the glory of Christ declared. The glory of Christ declared. Look at verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This is language very much like, uh, almost identical to when the, the glory cloud of God descends upon the tabernacle in Exodus 40, the last chapter of Exodus, after the tabernacle has been built, God comes to inhabit it there. They become fearful and then listen to the voice of the Father. This is very reminiscent of the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3. Verse 35 says, And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son. Let's just take these one by one here. This is my son. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son. Here, the father acknowledges that this is the son, the, the eternal son of the father. The father can't be the father without a son, and the son is not the son without a father. These are eternal relations that they have of origin. He is also the son in the sense that he is the ultimate representative of Israel. Israel is called God's son. Corporately, And of course, we've already established the point that this individual Israelite represents Israel and establishes the fulfillment of all the promises made to them. We also see that the Davidic king is referred to as the son. And so we see all these things coming together here as he is the eternal son, he is the ultimate representative of his people, and he is the Davidic king come to reign. And so this is, this is the kingdom preview, the kingdom glory preview. And he also says that he's his chosen one, his chosen one. So we already looked at one of the Isaiah servant songs in Isaiah 49. We mentioned Isaiah 53 in the suffering servant. Here's another one in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 verse one, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, there's that word, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Psalm 89, 3 connects this with the Davidic covenant. 
David is God's chosen son, and so will his descendant be to sit on his throne. Finally, we hear the command regarding the son who is chosen. The father simply says, listen to him. Listen to him. Now, this is very important for the disciples because they've just been told that Jesus is going to die and he's going to rise. Jesus told them that. And so the father is reaffirming that and saying, you need to listen to him. Listen to him regarding the cost of discipleship, uh, but also about the cross that must happen. But there's another thing. This is connecting Jesus to the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses made. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so here the father is connecting to Deuteronomy and saying, this is that prophet. He has come. If you didn't already get it, he's come. Listen to him. You must listen to Jesus for he is the son, the Messiah. This is the declaration of the father. This is the declaration of the prophets. J.C. Ryle, again, he says, that voice proclaimed to Peter's ear that however great Moses and Elijah might be, there stood one before him far greater than they. They were but servants. He was, God's, he was the king's son. They were but stars. He was the son. They were but witnesses. He was the truth. And so this is very practical for our application. Like, what's the application? Listen to Jesus. Listen to his words. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his angels. And so here's the Father saying, listen to him, listen to him. Of course, they come down from the mountain, verse 36. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was, not, was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything that they had seen. In Matthew, it's more explicit that they are not to tell anyone yet. That time will come, but it's not yet. And the Father gives us a clear declaration of who the Son is, who Jesus is. So we said earlier how to apply the text. Let me just remind you, assurance, confidence in who Jesus is. This is the vision that we need. This is the, the vision to give us hope, to give us encouragement. This is what the vision that gives us longevity in ministry together. It, it is this sight of Christ that, that helps us stay in ministry for the long term, to serve Christ till the end, we are not interesting enough to sustain ministry. If ministry is about us, we're far too boring for, for a lasting ministry. Ministry has to be about Christ. And so we continue to come back to this glorious vision of who Christ is, what he has done, and that puts fuel in our tank. We say, we want to keep going. We want to keep serving this Christ. We want to keep listening to him. And that's the second application from this movie trailer. We listen to his words. And this is exactly how Peter applied this. In 2 Peter 2 Peter 1, go there and we're done. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter recounts, he looks back on this moment in his life, this pivotal moment. And after speaking of his coming departure, his coming death, he recounts what was discussed on that mountain. Verse 16, 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you, listen to how he describes it, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He describes the transfiguration as the coming of Jesus. In what sense does Jesus come in the transfiguration? Well, it's a preview of coming attractions, the preview of that moment when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty or his glory for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then what he says is just incredible. Because you go like, I want to be there. I wish I could do that. I would be such a better Christian if I could see that. Peter says, no, that's not true. Verse 19, and we have something more sure, more sure than our experience, the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention. What does that sound like? Listen to him. 
Listen to his words. You do well to pay attention. As to a light, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the father said to Peter, listen to the son. And Peter says, better than our experience is the written word of God. You listen to that. You follow that. That is what is your North Star. That's what guides you. It is a light. It is a lamp in a dark place, in a dark world. This is our guiding point. This is our true north. We listen to the son and we have confidence that he is coming in his kingdom. And that, Charlie Brown, is what Christmas is all about, (laughs) right? That is the incarnation that establishes and sets off the trajectory for all these things, that he will die, that he will rise, that he will ascend to the Father, that he will sit at the right hand of the Father until he is sent to Zion and he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet and we reign with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. What a great passage for us to consider, even this morning, as we, as we locate ourselves in history. The cross has happened. The resurrection has happened. We are in this new age. We are in the last days. We are in this new age where the gospel is going forth, where people are being qualified for your kingdom as they are united to Christ by faith. And Lord, may it be here that those who don't know you would trust in Christ by faith. They would repent of their sin. They'd be right with you, the king. And so be prepared and excited for your kingdom on the earth. Or as we lament things in our world, may we also long for this kingdom, this glory. And may this sight that we have in the scriptures, both here in Luke and Matthew and Mark and Second Peter and other places, other visions, may this just give us such passion for you, Uh, poise in the midst of a a world that is opposed to you. And Lord, help us to um, have purity in light of these things, knowing what is coming, a new heavens, a new earth, in which righteousness will reign because Christ will reign over all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now we get to...